America is an amazing country filled with wonderful people who do incredible things. But too often, the media and liberal politicians ignore big parts of our nation and the people who make it work. So I'm speaking with leaders and policymakers who deal with real problems every day. I'm Ronna McDaniel, and this is Real America. Today, I'm going to be speaking with former White House press secretary and Fox News contributor Ari Fleischer. We're going to cover everything from his time in the Bush White House to his experience on 9-11 and his new book on the media's liberal bias. Well, I'm so excited to have a really long friend of mine. You helped me so much when I became RNC chair through the kindness of your heart with media training. But somebody the whole world knows, uh, especially our country, who was the voice during 9-11, Ari Fleischer. Thank you for coming on Real America. Oh, Rana, thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And I will never forget being a new RNC chair and being so new, coming from Michigan and not having a ton of media training and the time you spent with me. You watched videos. You helped me. I'm sure I have still make the same mistakes. Oh, no, look how good you are at it. <laughs> I don't know. Well, now you I have a podcast. Right but um, thank you for that help. You really are. And always somebody I can call and, and ask for advice. And I just appreciate that. You're just a really good guy. Well, so. I'm glad to do it. And I've got to say, Rana, good for you for sticking in there and being the chairwoman as long as you've done it. Thank you. And we need that kind of longevity. We need that kind of just somebody who knows what they're doing and keeps at it. So I appreciate I'm grateful that. you're there. Well, we're a team. So I, I do want to get to know you a little bit better for our listeners that don't know your story. Your mom was a Hungarian immigrant. Yep. Many of her family members were killed in the Holocaust. Yep. Um, just tell me your background a little bit and how you ended up working in the Bush White House. Yeah, I'm a first-generation American. I'm very proud of this country. We are a welcoming, wonderful country for immigrants. In, in 1939, my mother got out uh, just before wow. the Nazi invasion just of before, Poland. Just before, yeah. So we're not certain about it, but she left. We know she left in July of thirty-nine. Okay. She left from Hungary. She left France on a ship to come to the United States in August of thirty-nine. That we believe was the last ship to cross the Atlantic before the Germans started sinking with their U-boats. Every oh ship that goodness. crossed the Atlantic. So she just got out in the nick of time. How old was she? Eight years old. Eight she didn't speak old. a word of English. She spoke only Hungarian. She got to America, and she knew. My grandfather and grandmother knew, you have to learn English. Yep. And she would learn English by watching movies. That's how she Is there a movie to, she remembers that she loved or anything? She didn't cite any specific yeah, movie, okay. but that's what her routine was. You know, she wasn't taught English in any formal way. And I'll tell you, this woman, she's alive today. She's about to turn 91. She has the biggest vocabulary of anybody I have ever met. And she probably loves this country. Oh like my gosh. so many people who sacrifice so much, they, in some ways, I feel like they appreciate America and the freedoms even more. I think immigrants who come here love this country. And it's such a great story. And it's what our country should be about. Legal immigration enriches us, yep. it makes us better. And I'll tell you, to this day, when I hear one syllable of Hungarian, it warms my heart because Aww. it reminds me of my mom talking to her parents. Oh, I love And I heard that. it all the time. What's your mom's name? Martha. Martha. Oh, Martha I Fleischer. love Say hi to Martha for me. <laughs> I want to meet her. So then how did Martha's son, first-born American, end up being press secretary for the president of the United States? Well, I got lucky. Um, I, I, I was raised a liberal Democrat. Okay. My parents were liberal Democrats. I got to college at Middlebury, Vermont in 1978 as a proud liberal Democrat. And thanks to Jimmy Carter, I graduated a proud conservative <laughs> Democrat. 
And then thanks to Ronald Reagan, really, and his patriotism, his love of America, I changed parties right after I graduated from Middlebury. Okay. I moved to Washington. I was unemployed. I was a poli-sci major, French minor, and I, and I moved to Washington. I started knocking on doors looking for a job, and I got a job as a press secretary to a New York State congressman. And that began my career. I spent 17 years on Capitol Hill. And that's how I got launched onto a age. presidential race. <laughs> I've decided you don't age. I can't believe you were 17 years. And then um, you became the White House press secretary under George W. Bush. Yeah. Uh, what was that first day like at the podium? Was it so scary? It was fabulous. Was it? it was, you loved it, I loved huh? everything about Were you nervous at all? No. No. I wasn't. You know, I moved to Texas in 99 to be Bush's spokesman on the campaign. Okay. So I got to know him extremely well when he was Governor Bush on the campaign, where things are so much more informal. And I really knew who I was working for. I knew his tics. I knew what he would say. Um, so I was able to be his spokesman because I knew him. And then I just couldn't wait. I loved being where the front page was going to be made before anybody knew it was on the front page. I loved being on the inside. I loved the pulse, the pace, the action. And I learned that the worse things got, the bigger the crisis, somehow the calmer I became. That's interesting because that's not everybody. No, but it was survival. Yeah, <laughs> if you're that makes sense. If you're this type, if you are uh-huh. up and down you and emotional, way. you're not going to survive the White House. Mm-mm. It's a place for stability and seriousness. And you do have to keep kind of that even even keel, especially dealing with a press corps because they'll rattle you. Their job is to rattle you, and, and I won't go let them rattle me off of you. So early in, we all know this, and I, I'm going to touch a little bit on this just because it's something I think everyone knows about you where was that you were with the president on 9-11. In fact, you do a Twitter feed where you recreate the day every year to commemorate um, the horrific tragedy of that day. Uh, I'm going to ask you a couple different questions. One, how did you keep calm during that? I mean, what was it like? And then I'd say the second question I want to ask after is when did you finally, um, were you finally able to process it and mourn it for yourself? Because I feel like when you're in the moment, you can't. Right. But was there ever that moment where you did just let down and it did hit you? Yes. Uh, that's a beautiful two-part question, the way, okay. you, way you put it. Um, you know, on the 11th itself, I was calm as could be. You know, when I look back, and so was the president, so was the Secret Service, so was the military aide with the nuclear football, so was pretty much every single person on Air Force One. And when I look back on it, it amazes me how unemotional it was for those of us traveling with the president and for the president, which sounds contrary to what everybody should be thinking about September 11th, but we all had a job to Mm -hmm. do. And you couldn't be emotional. You couldn't cry. You couldn't get angry. You couldn't get forlorn thinking about all the lost souls. You had a job to do to protect the country, especially because we were told there's going to be a second wave. A second attack is a question of when, not if, is what the CIA told us. So we're all now braced for the second attack beginning on September 12th. So everything had to be calm, serious, and steady. And that was the atmosphere at the White House. That's what, what it was. Now, I'll tell you, huge burden, too. I mean, there's no getting around how incredibly serious and difficult we knew that time was. It just felt like you were carrying the world on your shoulders every day you showed up to work, because in some ways you were. Everyone was looking to you. I mean, you were meeting the moment of helping our whole nation mourn. And the president helped me to do that, because I knew what he was doing and why. I knew what he was thinking. And the job as the spokesman, in some ways, is real simple. Just say what the president thinks. 
Be careful not to go too far and say too much <laughs> about what the president thinks, but just go to the podium and say it. So when there's a crisis, when there's a calamity, if I know what the president's doing and saying and thinking, it's actually pretty easy to take the podium and explain it and then deal with whatever questions come from the media to explain why this, why not that, why did the president think this? And also, I'll get back to you if I don't know. or You can say that, of mm-hmm. course. But in many ways, a a day like that was easier to brief the press than a slow news day where there was nothing going on, and I could take 20 questions on 20 different topics. Because you didn't know what was coming at you. Correct. Yeah. Everything was national security from September 11th forward. And then when did you let yeah. – is there a moment where it hit you? Yeah. So um, about 10 or 15 days after September 11th was the Jewish holiday of Yom Kippur. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't work on the Jewish high holidays. And – I was on the phone with one of my cousins who lives in New York City, and I'm, I was born in New York City, raised outside the city in Westchester County. Uh, I used to have lunch with my family at Windows on the World and the World Trade Center. And I was talking to my cousin, Marissa, and she had a view of the World Trade Center from her apartment, and she was telling me about it. And it was that moment. It was the combination of the Jewish holiday. You step back from work. You reflect. And here I am talking to my cousin, and that's when I broke down. I bet. She told I, me. I think about that a lot. And are you? Do you feel like there's a bond that 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 Bush White House has because of what you went through together? Oh yeah, yeah. There, there's no question. You seem very. It's it's just very special seeing the the video footage which we have of what was happening on Air Force One. So I just want to thank you too oh. for being so open and sharing that story and helping our nation get through that. I always think about that with President Bush. He helped us heal. And he helped us feel safe in a time of great chaos and fear. And I think that's one of the greatest uh, achievements any leader can have. And you certainly were part of that. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, If you could give advice, and I know you're very kind to other press secretaries. (laughs) And regardless of party, there's kind of a camaraderie. Uh, But when you look at what happened with Afghanistan, when you look at the formula crisis, when you look at gas prices— I do feel like there's a lot of people really hurting and looking for that from this president and this administration and feeling like they're not listening or articulating or understanding or empathizing with the real valid concerns of the American people. What would, I don't know if you agree with that, but I would love, what advice would you give? Well, you're pointing out the the fundamental fact they don't have a message problem. They have a everything's going wrong problem. That's true. (laughs) And a lot of it's caused by Joe Biden. Not all of it, but most of it is caused by the president's bad decision-making process, by his bad decision, his bad judgments, and his fundamental bad judgment to run and govern from the progressive left instead of the center where somebody might have thought old Senator Joe Biden used to be. Which is how he ran, right? Exactly. Um, So that's the problem they have. Look, for the press secretaries, yeah, I'm— um, there is kind of a club. It's yeah. a hard job. I don't want to make it any harder for, for the current occupant of the position. But I will say you have to be fast on your feet in that job. You have to be able to explain things without reading notes. And it, t- it can take a little bit. It can take some time for a new press secretary to get there. But it's essential. You, you have to know enough about what's going on that you don't have to look down and read it. Yeah, you should be able that's to a great just point. say it. And did you study just every night? Were you just constantly reading and getting up to no, speed? No, it's not the reading. Okay. Then this is why I'm always going to be grateful to President Bush. It's being there. Okay. I was in the Oval for one third, one quarter of my days listening to what he listened to, hearing so what knew. he heard. I was in everything other than basically his CIA briefing. His was at this level. Mine was at that level. Uh, his had a much higher level. 
and National Security Council meetings. But other than that, I was in all the summit meetings with President Putin, with Ariel Sharon, the Israeli prime minister. You attend those as a press secretary, at least in the Bush White House. Cabinet meetings, meeting with congressional leaders. So the only way to speak for the president is to listen to him. So every day on the job, you learn more. It's an incremental building process because you're in the meetings. You're shadowing him. Shadowing him. Really? Which is that what I makes a September lot of 11. sense. Yeah. And he trusted me. He knew that I would reflect what he wanted to have said. He knew I would keep my mouth zipped about things that weren't yet developed. If he was hearing a policy debate, if there was a clash in front of him, which, by the way, one of the things I'm proudest of, there were many clashes in front of him, competing rivalries, different policy positions. We never leaked. That was a very unleaky White House, particularly in the first term. And that serves the president well. He, it serves he, everyone well. And then president benefits because he hears two just absolutely unvarnished sides of a debate. And then he makes up his mind. And when it's made up, we all salute him and support it. That's the way a White House should run. And and that's what I was part of. And that's how I learned how to do the job as press secretary and stay on top of all those issues. Yeah, there are things you can read. The National Security Council yeah. pumps out pieces of paper. And I do read them and study them and briefing books and things of that nature. But the best part of the job is you're, you're listening How to history. How cool is that? So I'm going to switch switch subjects a little bit. We see you on TV. You're obviously a commentator. But you have watched this, I'm going to say, degression of our press and our media. And I think we've talked about this before. We're, we're really polarizing as a nation. And you, you just wrote a book about this. Yeah. So I'm going to let you give the title of the book because it's long. And then talk a little bit about why you wrote this book and, and what it's about. Uh, the, the name of it, it's a mouthful. Okay. Uh, it's called Suppression, Deception, Snobbery, and Bias. All right. Why the press gets so much wrong and just doesn't care. <laughs> that is a mouthful. That's my book. I like it, though. And it's about the biggest problems we have. And I make the case in this book that one of the reasons we're so polarized is because the media polarizes us. Mm -hmm. The media has done a terrible job at telling the news fair, factually, and straight. And it's backed up by poll after poll that cites how low the American people hold the press in regard, and the press just doesn't care. They are no longer capable about doing their job well. They have become activists for a cause instead of people dedicated to the truth, whether it helped President Trump or hurt the Democrats. But instead what you got was the mainstream media, which was overwhelmingly what the press in Washington is. Yeah. Overwhelmingly. It's the New York Times, the Washington Post, the well, Associated Press. Well, didn't you press. do like a little oppo thing and find out? All right. Okay, so just share that a little bit. So I hired an opposition research company, and they just looked up the party registrations of the reporters at the White House. So on the first day back in June of 2021, the first day the media room, the press briefing room was open again after COVID, every seat was taken, 49 seats. Of those 49 reporters, the ratio of Democrat to Republican, 12 to 1. Wow. The White House press corps is overwhelmingly registered Democrats. Now, many of them beyond the 12 to 1 are independents, and I don't buy it. No. They registered as independent when they became journalists or they got assigned to the White House, and they're still Democratic activists at core. And that's the problem with the media today. We as conservatives, we know they're biased, and my book dug into example after example of their bias. And the biggest problem, and I found this in my book, Rana, the press after the 2016 election, when the American people elected Donald Trump, the American mainstream media decided the American people made a mistake and it was up to them to fix the wrong. And that's when they ruined themselves. They became activists for the Democratic cause. And whether you like President Trump or you don't, the press's job is to be neutral. 
Totally. And the American people get to decide. So what are some of the examples that you found? I mean, is there anything that you can give? Of course, we want everyone to go buy the book, but is there is there one that really... I mean, I think the Hunter Biden thing, I don't know if that's on your book, but oh, yeah. that is so glaring that we were being told, and they prefaced the story with the, the lie from the Trump campaign, the Russian disinformation of the Hunter Biden laptop, and then you find out that it was real. I dissect all of that. I dissect the, fa- the fake story about Donald Trump Jr. having access to the WikiLeaks yep, before they came right. out. CNN aired that. CNN led the league in the number of retractions it had to issue. I, I make the case in this book. I have a chapter about how bad CNN is, a chapter about how bad the New York Times is. But let me tell you my favorite. Okay. It was the Saturday after Election Day in November of 2020. Okay. That was the day the networks and everybody, called the race for Joe Biden. Correct. I remember that. That night, church bells went off in Paris. Fireworks were shot off in London. Correspondents for ABC News and other outlets all started to report about the worldwide celebration of Joe Biden's victory over Donald Trump. Ari Melber at MSNBC stopped talking for 18 seconds on live TV to take in the fireworks as he reported the world celebrating. You know what, Rana? It was the every Saturday night call to mass in Paris. It happens every single Saturday. And in London, it was the anniversary of something that took place 500 years ago, Bonfire Night, the night commemorating in 1601 in a failed attack on King James I when he showed up at Parliament oh my and they goodness. tried to kill I him I actually remember them doing that. I never knew Total the truth. Total fakery. None of it was true. It had nothing to do with America's elections. But because the mainstream media thinks the whole world must hate Trump, because I hate Trump, all sensible Americans hate Trump, they took the ringing of church bells to call people to mass as That's a reflection crazy. on our election. So how are they going to receive your book? What do you have, have any of them? I mean, have any of them reached out to you? Are they going to be mad or are they going to take it in stride and say, you know, maybe I should I think the change. mainstream media is going to do everything in their power to ignore the book. Yeah. Because they don't want these stories out there. They don't want people to know how bad they are. So the mainstream media is going to remain in, in denial and that's a bad place for them to be. Then that's why the American people have lost faith and trust. One of the numbers, the Gallup poll shows that the number of people who believe the news media tell the stories accurately, fairly, and, and fully is at a historic low. It's That's true. their job. Just it's tell true. the news straight, and the American people don't believe them. Here's the other thing I discovered in this book. The only group of Americans who think the press understand them are college-educated Democrats. Democrats with a high school degree will say, the press doesn't understand me. Independents with a high school degree or a college degree say the press doesn't understand me. Republicans, of course, say the press doesn't understand us. What you have is a slice of America, mostly college-educated Democrat reporters, talking to a slice of America, college-educated Democrat readers. That's the media for you today. And this is why culturally they're out to lunch, why they don't understand the pro-life movement. They think it's narrow-minded. Yeah. This is why they, dis- they dismiss people who pray every day or go to church regularly. This is why they never saw Donald Trump's win They didn't win see him possible. coming. They never saw it coming. But can it be fixed? Because I, I get asked this a lot. Is it just going to get worse? Is there any bringing it back? My argument in this book is if they want to fix it, they need to change who becomes a journalist in the first place. They need to welcome people into newsrooms who hunt for a living, who grew up with guns, who go to church every week. They need to bring people in who grew up in rural areas. But, you know, the press defines diversity as your sexual orientation or your gender or your race, not your 
not your opinions. Right. No, nothing about different opinions media. or they viewpoints. Need better newsrooms. CNN would not have made the trove of mistakes it made against Donald Trump and all those retracted stories if it only had a few people who thought differently in their newsroom. It made us say, hold up, before we put that on the air, let's think about it. But they're so liberal, so anti-Trump, so cut from the same college-educated Democrat cloth, they cannot see the rest of America, and it's killing journalism. It's the media for sure. I know I felt that. I felt that way. I mean, I'm from Michigan. I didn't live in D.C. before this job. I still live in Michigan. But I remember feeling like they don't get— they don't get Culturally, they don't get me. They don't get—you know, I was a stay-at-home mom. They don't understand people like me. Uh, and actually, it's more than that. They look down— Yes. On people like in the middle of the country, they look down yes. on people who go to church every Sunday. I almost yes. felt that way, like there's a disdain. Yeah. And it's it's disheartening to feel that way, that you don't have a home on news media. So what's happening is I think people are finding outlets where they do feel like they have a voice or somebody that represents them. But it's not just the media, it's big tech. It's big tech, which is a huge problem. I think I told you earlier we just found through a study done in North Carolina that Google, and this is an independent study, not biased, not re- by Republicans, just data scientists showing that Google sends about 80% of Republican emails to spam versus 8% of Democrat emails, which is, by the way, voter suppression because those emails are get out and vote. It's also fundraising. Uh, how can we fix what's happening with big tech and this is why one of the titles of my book is Suppression, Suppression, it is Deception, suppression. Snobbery, and Bias. Look, we have to build our own. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say that because I would much rather have one America. I would rather have one America we can get treated fairly, where everybody, regardless of political strife, can be treated fairly. But if the only option is let the current conglomerate, gigantic media tilt the scales to benefit one side, we have to create our own mm-hmm. and further let America divide. But just as Fox News broke out of the network pack in the 1990s when they recognized these people are so liberal, there's a craving for just a different tone, a different voice. Fox has found tremendous success. The same thing will happen in the tech world. And you see the rumblings of there's that some now. Of it you see Truth yeah. Social. You see Parler. You see uh, free conservative. Free Chad Scricket's thing that he's starting. Yep. Right, that's another one. So – Conservatives are starting to find their footing here. It's going to take years of building and years of getting it right, uh, and then years to build up an uh, audience. But serious people can do it, and we need it done. And that's what needs to happen. I'm going to switch to the midterms because I know we're we're running out of time, which I could talk to you all day. But how are you feeling heading into these midterms? What do you see right now as a former press secretary and a prognosticator on TV as the big issues? I mean, it's obviously going to be different before November. I always say— you know, we're we're four four or five months out. You never know what it's going to be. But what do you see as the driving issues? And I don't want to jinx anything, but this is how I see it. And I, I remember watching the 1980 wave, the 1994 wave, the 2010 wave, and the 2014 wave. This is shaping up just like those years. Mm-hmm. This is shaping up as a massive Republican win. And that's because the president is so unpopular. Nothing seems to be working. The direction of the country is wrong. People still have the hangover from COVID where things didn't go right. And all of it adds up to a massive repudiation election. Um, we'll be limited in the Senate because there's just not that many gettable seats. Yeah, I think the Senate map's much harder. But I'll make you one prediction. There's always one sleeper race, and it's going to be Washington State. <laughs> Tiffany Smiley. Tiffany Smiley. <laughs> if I were Patty Murray, I, I'd be running scared. And she's a nobody in Washington. Tiffany Smiley is going to be our biggest surprise. She's amazing. Winner. She's. I'm going to be with her this week. But yeah, she's pretty amazing. I agree. There is going to be a sleeper race. Okay, I'm going to put you into... 
um, press secretary for every candidate right now running, what would be your piece of advice to every single candidate like you gave to me when when you're helping me with media training or be their media trainer? What would you say to these candidates? That's easy. The one most important thing when it comes to communications, what's your headline? Mm-hmm. When you give a speech, when you give an interview, if you have one headline you want people to walk away with, what is your headline? So never go into an interview unless you know what your headline is. Mine is buy my book. <laughs> Suppression, deception, snobbery, and bias. <laughs> I love that. You know, I tell my my comms team that. You know, when I'm doing a radio interview or something, they'll give me like pages and pages and pages of info. And I'm like, the top needs to tell me what do we want the story to be out of this interview. We always have to have a purpose. And our candidates need to stay on message too. We think too complicated. We think we're too complicated. Keep it simple. Yeah. Not stupid. Geniuses. I don't <laughs> I, mean, I, I don't like the it's the economy stupid. No, it's the economy. Geniuses. Keep it simple. Geniuses. Um well I just think you're great. Uh, I know you love this country. I'm sure your mom is just so proud of you. Your whole family is because you are just an amazing person and, and friend and we're very lucky to have you in our party. So thank you, Ari. And thanks thank for joining you, me on my podcast. Thank you. Thank you. I'm Ronna McDaniel, and this is what Republicans stand for. Join us next time on Real America. Paid for by the Republican National Committee. Not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. www.gop.com.